All right. Welcome back to Acquisitions Anonymous, the internet's number one podcast about small business acquisitions and now also operations. We are excited to try some new formats of content based on what we've heard from our listeners. One of the things we've heard is, hey, help us with doing some of the operational stuff, especially post-integration. You know, help us figure out how to do that better, right? Like that's a very scary time. You've bought a business. What do we do? So we put our heads together. We also went and found um, somebody who's done it a bunch, both in his previous career and what he's doing now. Dmitry Miranovich, who you guys should know as a friend of the pod, has been on here before and um, is sporting an amazing baseball cap today, which maybe we should get baseball caps, Bill. Yes. Really up our swag game. I don't mm-hmm. know. It would help for those of us with no hair, meaning me. <laughs> but um, Dimitri, like super excited to have you here. People probably have heard your episode with us before. Uh, I think you, me, and Mills talked about rolling up and buying uh, veterinary practices, which is much more interesting than maybe at first glance people think. It's a really fascinating thing, but um, we're so excited to have you today and kind of talk through this topic of, I bought a business, like now what? How, how do I make sure I don't screw it up? So thanks for being here. Yeah, no, of course. Thanks, guys. Uh, Michael, Bill, it's great chatting with you again. I guess I can start and then open to any questions and sort of take it into any direction. Yeah. I guess first thing that I would say is before we get into the post-acquisition integration, I think you should have a game plan ahead of time. Like, what is it that you're actually going to do? And some of those things you should front run ahead of time. And the reason I'm saying that is because the day you close in the business, like the time clock is ticking and you'll have a lot in your hands and you might feel overwhelmed. And there are certain things that you can do ahead of time. Like two things that specifically come to mind, the two things that we uh, always try to front run in our business right now, acquiring that clinics is number one is making sure your bank account is set up, like set up bank account, get the credit card, uh, and keep in mind for that, you'll need your federal ID, you'll need your NCS form ahead of time as well. Get void check. That's something that uh, vendors might require and also your payroll provider might require. Get the void check, get the debit card, get the credit card. Basically have everything bank account related set up. Something else that we've experienced a few times is that some of the smaller banks, and you might end up using one because you are in the middle of nowhere, and there's just no Chase or Bank of America, you're sort of regular, perhaps, banker or a bank. Uh, some of the smaller banks have very convoluted processes around getting you approvals to use wire transfers and ACH transfers. And so make sure you ask ahead of time that, you know, the first deal that we've done, like I had no idea and turned out that, you know, our bank was just not set up to do wire transfers the day of when mm-hmm. we we're supposed to wire funds. And so, it's just something to to know and something to front run. And then the other big piece that you should front run is anything related to vendor change forms. So you'll find out that a lot of vendors, uh, specifically, it could be your if you're doing an so if you're doing an equity deal, I think that's a separate story. And chances are you're not gonna. Uh, need any of that but if you're doing an asset deal which is i assume most of the deals that are sort of done in the in the smb space or micro private equity space if you're doing an asset deal most of the vendors or like some of the vendors might require you to fill out the change of control form or change of ownership form you might also be asked to do the same by your merchant processor i.e the company that takes 
you know, cred- process the credit card transactions for you. And those change forms could take weeks to be approved. And so it is something that we honestly, one way or another, struggle each time we do a deal. And so just asking the seller what what are the key vendors, what are the key contracts, what is the mer- who is the merchant processor, reaching out to them ahead of time. You might have to ask the seller to reach out because they might not want to talk to you if you're not the legal owner. Getting those forms ahead of time, filling those forms out, and then signing them, having the seller sign them, I think was will save you a ton of headache uh, post-closing. So it seems like, I mean, you just spouted off like 14 things, and I'm not a detail person, so maybe that's why they don't ask me to do post-merger integration, but like, what mechanism are you using to like track all this stuff? Because you're a serial acquirer. Yep. Like, do you have a master list that you're using, or like, and where did you get that list? Did that come from, you know, a lawyer, a book? How, how do people kind of have that checklist of exhaustive, like, oh, I need to worry about all of these things from vendor contracts to whatever? So we do have a list. So we use Notion for that, by the way, highly recommend. You know, it's, I can't remember, it's maybe 10 bucks a month for the corporate subscription or even maybe less than that. Or I think it's like 50 bucks for a personal subscription uh, or 50 bucks a year. Notion is great. It's, you know, it lets you set up tasks list and task lists and things like that. You can use whatever you want. But point being is that we have a checklist and we assign certain tasks uh, to certain individuals. And uh, you're right. So we have a uh, we have a list of tasks that have to be completed pre-closing. And then we have a list of tasks that have to be completed post-closing. And we essentially have a template set up. And each time we send a new LOI, we dupe that template into a new tag for a new deal. And then it populates in our to-do list for the team. It assigns tasks automatically. And then, you know, we have, we follow that timeline, sorry, we follow that template uh, based on our timeline. So, so yeah, as, as far as how, uh, where that list came from, I mean, you know, when we started doing it, I mean, I asked our lawyer to send a list. I asked a couple of buddies to send me their lists. I, you know, recalled a few things from memory from my past job. And you also learn as you do those, I guess, back to back, you also learn things. And then, so this list, you know, it's been increasing or like it's been growing and it's actually been contracting because we found out that certain tasks are actually unnecessary mm. and certain things are just very low value add. Uh, but, but yes, I think, I think you, ha- you should have a structure uh, in place because otherwise you'll inevitably forget. I would also highly recommend it's really technical, but I would highly recommend being able to take notes next, next to each task. So not just having a sort of check mark done, but, having a some sort of process of where you're able to take notes because you'll want to come back and take a look at those tasks later on and see what was done and i would do the same for example by the way for the diligence list so we do, we use the same process for diligence lists and so being able to take notes and then come back because inevitably inevitably you'll forget and then inevitably you'll have questions about what you've done pre-closing yeah i I think doing this, this is one of those areas where if you do multiple deals, you really do get a lot better because you yeah. you snug your toe a bunch of times on stuff that you fail to integrate properly. Yeah. One thing we learned back to your point about financial infrastructure was that 
payment processing accounts, uh, credit card processing accounts are typically personally guaranteed by mm-hmm. the owner, which means they do not transfer. Mm-hmm. Which means, and also, which means they have to be underwritten typically. Uh, so you can't just like open a payment. I mean, Stripe is sometimes a little different, but a lot of traditional payment processors will not open a credit card processing account like on the phone in real time. So the first business we bought, uh, the seller was like piping me money for a month yeah. <laughs> because we weren't set up to process trans- uh, credit card transactions that close. Well, it's, it, this all actually gets worse. Worse the when you start to enlist foreign accounts as well. So we bought a software company in the UK, and it took us almost two months to get access to our money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so so you know all that kind of stuff happens happens as well. But uh, you know so let's say I'm a new I'm a new uh, acquirer, and this is my first time to get a list. It sounds like how how do I put together kind of that. Oh, oh my God, I don't want to screw this up. List of stuff. Go, go ask. It sounds like Dimitri, you went and asked everybody you knew. Yep. Uh, you, I, I assume in the books, there's, there's some starter lists as well. Brent Bashore's book and stuff like that. I can't remember it specifically, but I think it might've had a list in there. You know, those are places, the HBR book yep. about acquisitions. Um, is that the strategy? Yeah, I, I think so. You also, you can also go and search funder and there are a few sort of diligence lists floating around and integration lists floating around. I think it's a good starting point. I would caveat though you would have to sort of personalize that list for your for a given industry because there are a lot of nuances for specific industries. And then I think once you start as a generic list, I mean assuming most people are, in, are looking to make one acquisition, they're not looking to, you know, roll up an, an industry because the two are obviously very different. But as you're working through your first acquisition or your only acquisition, I think you'll get smarter along the way and you'll have questions pop in your head. And so in, in, you need to start somewhere. And I would also recommend collecting a few different lists. So your lawyers would have a list too, or they should have a list. And uh, I think their list would be focused, you know, would be would have a bit of a different focus, right? They would be focused on regulatory environment and liabilities and things like that. And so I think a lot of that stuff is very useful and a lot of that stuff is overlooked in sort of traditional diligence lists, but yeah. Well, I would add, I did that exact same thing the first time I bought a business and the lawyers and the accountants gave me like a hundred page list. (laughs) And like, you learn pretty quickly, like, oh, there's about 93 pages of that that doesn't matter at all. Right. Um, and future sellers appreciated that. The first seller <laughs> wasn't very happy with me. Um, so let's, let's transition a bit. So we, we just... Well, I want to add just one more thing as far as, like, how to make a list. As you said, Michael, you can get a list that's, like, a million miles long. One thing that I find to cull it is start with the credit card statement. Basically follow the money because everything that they pay for has to be transitioned. Right. Because if they're paying for it, their name's probably on it. Your credit card's got to go on that account. And it's probably kind of critical to the operations of the business. So if they're paying for it, that kind of tells you what the business is running on. And then similarly, if they're getting paid by it, same thing, a credit card processor, key customers, as you mentioned, Dimitri, et cetera. So if you want a place to start, start with the money flows in and out for places to transition. Yeah. I love it. Well, cool. So Dimitri, the, in the prep for today, the second thing kind of bucket you talked about is like, you talked about this, the the process of starting on the right foot, right? In terms of having a good day one meeting with yep. the new folks. And then the second bucket was you just talked about like 
okay, in most of these businesses, the number one, you know, asset that you have is the knowledge in the people's heads and they go home every day and you hope they come back the next day. So this maybe talk a bit about how you think about those two things and how, how acquirers should think about starting off on the right foot and then also retaining the people that you want to keep. Yeah. So, so I think first of all, you should have conversations with all the key employees uh, before you walk into the doors. So the way we do it is essentially we we speak with the seller. Uh, typically, seller stays with us. It's in our case, seller is typically one of the veterinarians at the clinic. But we also want to chat with the practice manager, with maybe key surgery technicians, some of the other associates, veterinarians at the clinic. Basically. Everyone who we think is a key employee, like we want to chat with them before closing, beforehand. And it doesn't have to be a lengthy conversation, just needs to be, you know, a 10 minute chat where you make them realize that they're important to you, right? And you care about them and uh, you want them to stay, right? To to be there. And, and so I, I think that sets a good precedent. Now, when you walk into the doors day one and to make a presentation, you know, we try to keep it sort of high level. We just, you know, present, you know, who we, who we are, what we're going to do. My advice or like my number one advice is to, is not, or I guess my number one advice is to try not to promise anything specific and also try not to promise that, you know, some people go in and say nothing will change. I mean, inevitably something will change, right? And so, and people will haunt you for that. And so I, I think just staying somewhat generic and vague uh, is helpful. I mean, you, you want to be positive, right? And you hopefully believe that, you know, ass- assuming you're not in the business of acquiring distressed assets, which is a whole separate story, right? And assuming you're acquiring a <laughs> a performing going concern business, then, you know, you should be positive, right? Like you, you should, you should be excited about growth. You should be excited about, about opportunities and you want them to be excited as well. Uh, you know, we kind of gently imply that there will be changes. Uh, we do promise that we're not going to cut people and things like that, but, you know, we don't make sort of blank statement of, you know, nothing is going to change. Uh, something else that we do, we we do a lunch for the team the day we come into the doors. You know, it's it's a small thing. It's a very easy thing to arrange, but I think it's quite impactful. And we try to chat about just, you know, life and things and so try to make it personal. We try to, we also something else that we do that I think differentiates us from other buyers in the industry. We look very non-corporate. So, you know, we're like, group of people wearing sneakers, jeans, you know, t-shirts, maybe polos, but like very informal. I mean, we'll, we'll look proper, right? Like, but we're, we're not wearing suits and ties and button-down shirts. And I think that enables us to relate closer to the demographic that we're talking to. Michael, I think you were going to ask some kind of people, people transition things from my end. Yeah, yeah. I was curious if you've gone through, you know, the, anything in, in your career. Yeah. So. You know, typically when you buy a business, very often the people assets are critical. And if those people assets, there's a window, right? Because you buy that business and you have all the financial risk, but you don't know anything. Mm -hmm. So the only people that know anything are the people that work there and your fate is in their hands. 
Um, so I have always been pretty aggressive with financial incentives. In addition to Dimitri, everything you mentioned, I thought was great advice about being personally relatable. We have always come in with kind of a, we're so glad to meet you guys. We're so excited you're here. And as an indication of how excited we are that you're here, we want to give you guys all $1,000 uh, or $500 or something like that as just like a welcome bonus. And then we hang another $1,000 or $500 or something out there 90 days later, mm-hmm. assuming you're still employed, which is which is not a lot of money in the grand scheme of the acquisition, typically, because there's typically not a lot of employees. So pick the number that works for for you, acquire, but something to say, hey, we're glad we're here. Like, like we're not going to fire you. We just gave you a bonus, right? That doesn't compute, right? And then also, please don't go looking for a job. You know, I really need your help. Stick around for 90 days, you know, and or six months or or whatever you you deem. But I it's very cheap insurance. And for the the key employees, I would make the numbers too big to deny. I mean, like I have offered, you know, half a year of salary for a stay bonus for a really important person. Wow. You know, for like six six to twelve months. Like stick around and you're gonna get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and it was worth every freaking penny. Yeah. And I've seen where that for the right acquiring team, like the team on the inquire side who builds relationships with the employees and the owners during the the courting process prior to closing, I've seen to where they, you know, if they're really good at it, they can start to win over the team even before the deal happens, right? Right. Like, especially when you're going in and doing diligence and talking to different people, especially if they're in the ring of trust for the owner. Even so far where, like, I've seen some deals where the team was so good and trustworthy and so genuine when they went in that the team was telling the, uh, the acquirer, like stuff that like in retrospect, the seller was like, you knew that, like they told you that it is because, you know, they actually had already mentally joined the team of the acquirer before the transaction had even happened. So you going in and being like a genuine, nice person, you know, both pre and post acquisition and, and caring about them as people, like, especially if the, uh, the atmosphere and environment that they're in right now is bad, like it can make you money. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, it's a solid thing to, to do. Yeah, and we we try to meet with key stakeholders. It, it depends. Sometimes like two weeks to four weeks before closing. So, for example, we're hopefully closing a uh, an acquisition in about the months, and uh, my uh, co-founder, um, Dr. Bill, just went to the clinic. Matt was all the associates. Matt was the seller, um, and he actually received an inbound request or like inbound interest from some of them to co-invest with us and to buy the clinic alongside with us so that just speaks to i think what bill mentioned like you know you're trying to build those relationships i also would say that it's super important to identify the key point person for the integration to come post-closing because what we found out is that there'll be a lot of requests and some of them will be small some of them will be very significant but you need to have one one dedicated person to chase those requests for you could be the seller if the seller stays with you in the business, but oftentimes, you know, seller is either checked out or seller's time is extremely valuable. So in our case, you know, doctors, you know, their time is extremely valuable and they're not always the most uh, just organized throughout the day just because they have cases coming 
coming out, you know, emergencies, things like that. And so having a dedicated person, whoever that is, uh, is extremely important. And I think it's, it, it's worth chatting with the person ahead of closing or in the closing day about the expectations for them being that key sort of point person for the coming, you know, months, two, three months and so forth. So how do you think about when is the right time to, especially if you're acquiring the business into an existing business, when is the right time to start rolling out changes, like the integrations you want to have, new new software systems that you're using, new processes and procedures? You know, what it, there's a yin and yang there, right? Change is going to hurt morale, but it's also going to help make everybody more yeah. successful. So, you know, how do you how do you think about that, both in your specific instance and then I think also in general? Yeah, I, I think some changes have to happen day one. Like otherwise, it just becomes incredibly painful. So, specifically HRS, if you're using one, you need to take over day one. So everything payroll benefits related, you need to take over day one. You need to onboard all the employees. You need to collect their I nines. Uh, you need to essentially hire them into the new entity. If you're, if this is a, an asset deal, and there's a new legal entity, that has to happen day one. Um, something else that needs to happen day one is, uh, you know, basically your accounting system, right? Like you don't necessarily need to train the team to use your accounting system if it's a new system or whatnot, but you need to make a point that, okay, day one, we're using the new accounting system, meaning that if you used to input transactions into QuickBooks and now, you know, stop doing that, stop, you know, either send them to us to record into our accounting system, or if you're familiar with our accounting system, we'll start, you know, we'll enable you to start doing that day one, because otherwise it just becomes painful. Um, I mean, everything else, we take a gradual approach. Like for example, we, we space uh, our visits. So day one, we have two people going in, and then a few weeks later, we have our practice management officer going in, and so he trains the team on what we call managerial checklists, essentially things that we want the team to do on a daily basis or a weekly basis. And so, so we, we space those things out. But, you know, I wouldn't make all the changes they want, but certain things have to happen day one, just because otherwise it's going to be incredibly painful. It's great. Yeah. All right. I usually try to drop like one or two growth-oriented things. Like, I know you guys have been wanting to you know, release new products. One of the things we're really excited about is to bring the resources to launch new products. You know, I, so I typically try to drop like one or two, the constraints are off things, something you learned during diligence that you know they should do, they probably know they should do, and now you're going to be able to do. I just drop like one or two of those and leave it at that for a couple of weeks so they can get fired up. And then a couple of weeks in, you start rolling out the ones that might make them a little bit more uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it's always good to earn goodwill first and make their lives easier a little bit at first. And then, you know, you're able to ask them to do more things. Yeah, that's great. All right. Um, anything else we missed on this topic? I think I feel better about my ability to integrate stuff, which is make sure somebody else does it. <laughs> <laughs> make sure, now, as long make, as you trust the other person. <laughs> I would be fine the first time. Make, maybe so, yeah. Make sure you do not touch ERP day one. Just, just don't. Make ERP sure you don't want. Make sure you do not touch the ERP day one. Fair, or maybe even day ninety. Yes. <laughs> ERPs break businesses. Just be extremely careful with the ERP. And if you want to implement the new ERP, 
you know, roll out your own ERP, whatever you want to do, or change the existing ERP, just be extremely, extremely cautious. Because if you botch something, you could literally destroy your business for a period of time. Well, I think that's a really good point, Dimitri, because having done several ERP integrations in LLMs, <laughs> the key to a successful one is understanding the business backwards and forwards, like all of the different ways the business touches the ERP and you know what it needs to do. All ERPs are pretty customizable. They have to be customized. So if you're a new acquirer, you don't understand the business well enough on day one or probably even on day 90 or I would wait a whole year. I mean, like you got to understand the intricacies of how this business really runs before you touch the ERP. Yeah. And if you're, if you're a serial acquirer, it's almost easier to build some sort of mid layer, uh, either software or even manual process whereby someone takes data from that one ERP and then makes it comparable to data from your other, you know, businesses, clinics, whatever you own, and just kind of do that for the for the time being. I think that's a uh, that's an immediate solution you could implement. That you know it requires people hours, but it's not that bad usually. And then that obviously doesn't risk you know destroying your business. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, I think we did great on this one, and we will uh, click stop. And uh, thanks everybody for joining us this week. Hopefully you learned something. I definitely did uh, about how to. Well, do this post-merger, post-acquisition integration better. So thanks, guys. Thanks, Dimitri. Thanks, guys. Good chatting.